Greetings in Jesus' name this morning. The one who has won the victory for us. What for song did we sing this morning? Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Yes, all to him I owe. You can change the leopard spot or melt this heart of stone. Adam and Eve lost and the Lord Jesus Christ regained it. And as we think about it, morning by morning, day by day, and as we see the masses of people, <laughs> and we see our little lunch, we might feel inadequate. <laughs> we do. But Christ actually had the ability to magnify what we have. By faith. Yeah. So, I was blessed by the service, definitely so far, and challenged. Okay, well, why don't we just pause for a word of prayer? Let's just pray. We are grateful to you, Lord, for the great salvation that we have, that in our hearts, Lord, in our lives, in our spirit, in our soul, we can have peace and rest. Even in the midst of turmoil and trial and suffering. So Lord, we thank you this morning for the gospel. We thank you, Lord, for your salvation. And we pray, Lord, that as we look into your word this morning, that you would truly instruct us and encourage us. And equipped us, Lord, if the Apostle Paul desired to go to the Romans and have some fruit among them, and to have his faith mutually encouraged with theirs, I pray, Lord, that that would be our experience this morning here as well. Lord, that your spirit would work, your word would have a, find a place in our hearts, and that it would find root and it would grow. Lord, we ask you to be with us and to bless us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can turn to 2 Corinthians this morning. The second message of our study of the letter, second letter Corinthians to the church at Corinth. And there were some here that were not here the last time, and I gave a lot of the background of this book the last time, and I'm not going to do that, but I'm just going to give a little bit of overview for the sake of some that were not here for that. This letter, epistle of 2 Corinthians that Paul wrote to the church is the most biographical letter that he wrote of any of his 13 letters, maybe 14 if you include the letter of Hebrews, which I think Paul wrote, but we don't know for sure. 
This is not a full autobiography of Paul, but it's the most of any. And it, it's one of the most emotional books. In it, he bears his heart. You can feel his joy. You can see him expressing his hope and his pain and his dismay. And even his love and his wrath are in this book. <clears throat> it's about a man with a real personality with real, remotion, uh, real emotions. So just a little bit of a background here. Um, near the end of Paul's second missionary journey, he came to the city of Corinth. And it's a major cosmopolitan area. And he stays there with Aquila and Priscilla, his wife. And like Paul, Aquila is a tent maker. So Paul lives with them and he, he works there. And he preaches the gospel there. And there is some response and there's some opposition. And then Paul got one of those visions from the Lord in Acts I'll just read it, Acts 18, 90, 11. Then spake Paul, the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision, Be not afraid, but speak, and hold not thy peace. Well, that'd be something for us today, maybe. But if, if they thought of what we heard about this morning. Don't be afraid, but speak, <laughs> and hold not thy peace. For I am with thee. Well, that would be all for all of us, would it not? And no man, this is specific to Paul, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. During those 18 months, this church developed. And then he left, went across the Aegean Sea to Ephesus. And while he was to Ephesus, word came to him already from Corinth that things, weren't, things, things had started to go wrong at Corinth after he left. And the issue from what we can piece together was an issue of immorality. And you can piece together, we're not going to do it, but in 1 Corinthians 5, it talks about them writing them about immorality, him writing to them about immorality. So it seemed to be something like that. So he wrote them a letter, and we don't have that letter. We only have a reference to it. And at some point, he also got a letter back, which not sure when that happened. But on Paul's third missionary journey, he comes back to Ephesus, and while he's at Ephesus, he gets word again from Corinth, and this is from Chloe's house. And the report is not good. It's not going well at Corinth. And there he writes the letter we call 1 Corinthians. And based on pieces, piecing verses together, the problems in the church remained even after that letter. And it seems to me, as I can say, he wrote them another letter that's called the severe letter. The one that he, after he sent it, he regretted sending it. It was so hard. He did not know what they were going to respond. I mean, this, is, this, is, this was probably a kill or cure letter, is what I imagine. It's, uh, someone tells you, uh, I got this bottle of pills, you take 25 a day. I mean, you think it's kill or cure. 
It's going to do one or the other. Um, that's what this letter was. And he was really, really concerned. And he did not know what the result was. And so he was waiting for Titus to come back with the report. And Titus didn't come back to Troas like they had agreed to. So he went to Macedonia. And finally he met Titus. And the report was good. Not 100% good. Maybe 80%. But it was a tremendous relief to Apostle Paul. After a long, long time, the report came back. And Titus told him something like this. He said, the main body of the church is responding positively to your letter. They have repented, and they are coming back in obedience to the gospel. They are doing what they were supposed to be doing. Things are turning around. And Paul was relieved. At the same time, he knew the battle wasn't over. They still had you know, their recent pagan background. They still lived in a very wicked city. And most concerningly, there were still some influential people in, I'm not sure, I think it's, it, well, at least circulating among them. I don't know if they were part of the church or not, but circulating among them, associating with the church, there were influential people who were dead serious in discrediting Paul and his teachings and throwing him out and coming in with their teaching. That was clearly in there in this letter. Uh, we can take that by uh, reading 2 Corinthians. And because there were those people there who wanted to discredit Paul, that is the focus of this letter. When you read of what Paul, some of the strange things that Paul did, <laughs> boasting, uh, folly and all the things later on in the letter he, he, he goes the whole way through but towards the end he does some really strange things it's because of that because of these false apostles who were trying to undermine the whole church and were trying to deny Paul's apostolic authority and they were still there and there were still people in the church that were tended to give them an, an ear. They were not completely closed out. And that resistance that had been against Paul was knocked back, like a cancer that had been put in remission, but it can come back. And Paul knew that. So that's what the letter's for. A letter's mostly a self-defense of his character, since they were still there. And he challenges the church. Are you going to believe me? Or are you going to believe them? Look at my record. Look at my work. Look at my suffering. Look at my credentials. You knew how I lived amongst you. With all that, who are you going to be faithful to? So this morning we're going to look, um, anyhow, then he writes this intensely emotional and personal letter to persuade them that he is who they originally saw him to be before the detractors smeared him. So this morning we're going to look at chapters, chapter 1, verses 3 to 11. And we're going to read this. He gives some personal testimony as what God has done for him 
and when God, such as when God gave him comfort in his suffering. And then he applies also to the suffering that the Corinthians experienced. So let's read here. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble, by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same suffering, which we also suffer. Or whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast, knowing that as ye are partakers of the sufferings, so shall ye be also of the consolation. For we would not, for we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. But we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and doth deliver, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us, ye also helping together by prayer for us, that for the gift bestowed upon us by the means of many persons, thanks may be given by many on our behalf. The title of this message is Thriving in Suffering. Now in my reading and my study over the many years, I have come to a I bumped into a phrase that intrigued me. It was the phrase, human flourishing. How, how many of you ever heard that phrase of human flourishing? Okay. It is actually a definition. And there are several definitions that I found this morning or uh, this, this past couple of days that I was studying here. Human flourishing. Human flourishing is characterized by a holistic concern for the spiritual, moral, physical, economic, material, political, psychological, and social context necessary for human beings to live well according to their design. So it's, um, if you get the context right for people to live, they'll flourish. That's, that's what, it, that's what uh, human flourishing is, uh, the goal of human flourishing. In other words, like a seed in a garden with good soil, good climate, good pest control, and all that, you can have a, a good crop. <clears throat> Here's another definition from Wikipedia. Flourishing is a state where people experience positive emotions Positive psychological functioning and positive social functioning most of the time. Living within an optimal range of human functioning. It is a descriptor and measure of positive mental health and overall life well-being and includes multiple components and concepts such as cultivating strength, subjective well-being, that's self-esteem, goodness, generativity, 
growth and resilience. Flourishing is the opposite of both pathology and languishing, which are described as living a life that feels hollow and empty. Now, I'd like to ask you this question. According to these definitions of human flourishing, from what I read this morning, was Paul flourishing? Hmm? Did he have the... Um, was he living within the optimal range of human functioning, <laughs> for once? They talk about being pressed out of measure. If you would have experienced what Paul did and gone through what Paul did, would you consider yourself flourishing? <laughs> Anybody want to volunteer anything at all? I mean, you don't have to, but I would uh, welcome one. Okay, we'll get to there. <laughs> walking out in God's will is not flourishing. Paul, would it, oh, walking in God's will is flourishing. Okay, we'll get into that a little later. But according to the definitions we read, was Paul flourishing? No, probably not. Um, Paul said, and this is another trans, uh, translation, he said, we were crushed and overwhelmed beyond our, our ability to endure. And we thought we would never live through it. In fact, we expected to die. It was that bad. So that's not a definition of flourishing. And then we could add one of the three lists that Paul gives in this letter. And I'll just read it. In, it's in 2 Corinthians 11. He said, He was in labors more abundance, in stripes above measure, in prison more frequent, in deaths off of the Jews. Five times received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Thrice I served, suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep. That's a drift at sea. Try that sometime. See how flourishing you are. In journeys often, in pearls of water, in pearls of robbers, in pearls of my own countrymen, in pearls by the heathen, in pearls in the city, in pearls in the wilderness, in pearls in the sea, in pearls among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, and in cold and nakedness, besides these things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. So, was he experiencing human flourishing? And maybe we should change the question. Was he thriving in suffering? Maybe that's a better question to ask. And I believe here is a major distinction between the goals of secular counseling and Christian counseling that is based on the secular models. Because <clears throat> the theories and the methods, they vary. They vary to the extreme, but the, the goal of psychiatry and psychology and counseling and therapy is to somehow bring some measure of human flourishing to the individual, to the patient. That would be a goal, right? You would think that's a goal of, of, uh, of counseling and psychology. Now, they have many, 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 many different theories. 
but the goal is the same. And the, some of the theories, I just say, there's cognitive therapy, they have behavioral therapy, they have cognitive behavioral therapy, that's the mind and the behavior, and they have um, psychodynamic therapy, humanistic therapy, interpersonal therapy, schema-focused therapy, dialectic therapy, and electic therapy. Whatever the problem, whatever the method, the goal is to produce some kind of human flourishing in an individual. So I guess a few relevant questions would be, what would God say is human flourishing? Isn't that a relevant question? And if he says there is such a place, how do we get there? And does it agree with the normal, dominant, cultural view of flourishing? Now, there are, of course, elements of truth in the goals of human flourishing. I mean, we think of children, they do much better in a secure, safe environment. And it's, it's good to have a flourishing environment. I mean, all, that's, not, that's not wrong. But it doesn't give you the whole picture. And the topic is huge. I've never heard anyone talk about this. It's just something I have come across in my meditations. And so I, I may be somewhat off, but I'm going to attempt down this road. And I may miss some important facets. But there's one word that God gives of people that he says will flourish. There's one word that he uses to describe people that his definition of flourishing is. And he tells them what to do to experience true human flourishing. What do you think that word is? Any, any guesses? One word that I had thought of, maybe you can broaden me out. Humility. Humility. Okay. That's actually part of it. <laughs> What's the word Blessed. Okay, let's look at the word blessed a little bit, and that includes humility. Okay. <laughs> blessed means happy and well off and prosperous. Okay? So if you are blessed, you are happy, you're well off, you're prosperous. That look like flourishing? Yeah, it does. Okay, well let's look at what what God says is the pathway to that. So let's, well, you're just going to very briefly, how do you experience it? I'm going to just read the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed, happy, well-off, and prosperous are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Remember, we're talking about flourishing. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then is the Old Testament version of that. Psalms chapter 1. Blessed is the man 
that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like the tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Is that a picture of someone who's flourishing? Okay. Is that not what all the secular counselors would be seeking to achieve in a person? A tree planted by the rivers of water, they don't wither in hard times, and whatever they do shall prosper. Isn't that what everyone is looking for? We need to ask one more question. Are they embracing the pathway? Uh, the law of the Lord, walking not in the counsel of the ungodly, meditating in the law of the Lord, clearly not. See, flourishing God's way has a clearly laid out pathway. And it looks to me like it's straight and narrow. It actually does. Now, as a backdrop, that's what we're going to look at Paul now and how he thrives in suffering this morning in this passage here. How does he thrive when so many things are going wrong and then how do we thrive when so many things go wrong for us? Where does he start? Where does he start in his thriving in suffering? Well, he starts in the first verse there. He says, blessed be God, blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation. We can start, if you have trouble, we can start where he started. He said, bless be God. He said, praise be God. God be praised. All praise to God. So I have a question for you. Did you bless God this morning? If you start with blessing God and you're thriving in your, in your suffering, you start by blessing God. Did you bless God today or yesterday? Well, I'm going to, uh, Paul gives you several reasons here why we should bless our God. Number one, he is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we talked about the gospel this morning, right? Would that be enough to bless God for? <laughs> it would be. You know, in the Old Testament, we often have this title, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that one is repeated in the Old Testament on a regular basis. But now... We have in the New Testament, and this is repeated a number of times, God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he identifies God. And is that better? Well, is the New Covenant better than the Old? We'll actually get into that in this book where he talked about the two covenants. And what the Old wasn't bad, but the New is better, much better. The glory is not fading. The glory is getting brighter. So, now no one knew this better than Paul, 
because he used to be gung-ho of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. <laughs> he really was. He really thought he was serving God. Then he met the Lord Jesus. And his perspective of God totally changed. And he experienced God and he was never the same. So for him, God is not primarily the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, although he is, but he is the God, he is God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he blessed God. The next title which Paul blesses God for is he is the father of mercies. Mercy is the compassion and relief which is administered to those who are in misery. If you're not in misery, you don't need any mercy. If you have, if you have nothing wrong with you, it's like, a, it's like uh, if you're not sick, you don't need a doctor, right? You don't need mercy if everything goes well. But mercy, who needs mercy? Well, those who deserve justice need mercy, and we deserve justice. We need mercy. God has always dealt with mercy, in mercy with mankind, but he will always deal in justice when his mercy is despised. So God is merciful when he forgives us our sins, when he sustains us in our trials, when he relieves us in our trouble. And which is Paul speaking of? Because he experienced all three of this. I think probably all three. Have you received mercy? How many times did you receive mercy? Can you bless God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? And then the third the God of all comfort. Why could Paul thrive in his suffering? Because he received comfort from God. He received consolation. Um, the God of all comfort is better rendered the God of every consolation. The God of every consolation. Romans, I mean Romans, <laughs> Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 1, it says, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. And he goes on to why he could comfort people. It's a God of comfort. God is a God of comfort. The first time that was used in the New Testament is actually in Luke chapter 2, when uh, that old man, Simeon, and that same man was just and devout. He was in Jerusalem. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. The consolation of Israel. It's the same word, comfort, consolation. He was waiting for the comfort of Israel. He was waiting for it. Who was the comfort of Israel? It was the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who he was waiting for. And, 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 uh, and the Holy Ghost was upon him. That's relative too because... When they talk about the comforter in John 16, the Lord Jesus said, when I go, I'm going to send the comforter. That's actually the same. It's a variation of the same word. It's only one Greek number apart. I, I'm not going to try to actually just, uh, say the words. But it's the same Greek word, the comforter. 
So Paul delighted to trace all his comforts to God. And, and we're going to expound on these comforts as we go on. So he, he started as he is thriving in his suffering. He started here. He blessed God. And he blessed the God of our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort. You can start there. If you're suffering a lot, it's good to start right there. Verse 4, this is God who comforted us in our tribulation that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. Now what is in view here is the suffering Paul experienced because of his ministry. Because he preached the gospel. Because he would not be quiet. And because he would not compromise. He would not compromise with the Judaizers. He would not compromise with the Gentiles. He would not compromise the gospel at all. And because of that, he suffered. Very, very seriously traumatizing events. And in those events, he experienced the comfort, the consolation, the coming alongside, and the supporting help of God. He was not overwhelmed, ultimately, by his sufferings. Though like Job, he probably was overwhelmed by the severity of the suffering. Overwhelmed in the sense he was overwhelmed, but he was not overtaken by it. Uh, a short testimony there in, in chapter 4 of this lecture says, We are afflicted on every, in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but we're not destroyed. That is what Paul got. But see, this principle goes through all of life. It goes for us. Like Job, we don't know what goes on in the heavenlies as we are going through life. <clears throat> but we also have the God of every consolation for our suffering. I remember, okay, there, there's many ways we can experience consolation. I think now I'm thinking of applying it to us, and I don't know what for suffering you're going through, whether you're suffering for the cause of Christ or whether you're suffering through life in general. But uh, I thought of a number of ways that we experience consolation, and one is through the word of God. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. I remember some years ago reading a book, and I don't remember what it was anymore, but there was a father and there was a mother their child was dying. It had an illness of some kind. Uh, I don't remember what it was anymore. But the child was suffering and had a terminal illness. And some, it was very hard. It was so hard for them. Sometimes when they sat together, maybe they were there late at night. I don't remember exactly what it was. But they were too sad to sing. But the songs of the, the song ministered much to them, so they would read the hymns. 
They wouldn't sing it. They couldn't, they couldn't sing, but they could read it, and they got comfort from it. They read it out loud to each other. So that is one way that we have comfort is by the word of God and allowing the words of the Lord, the, the songs in this case, but the word of God speak to us. It's also through prayer. We have this exhortation to come boldly to the throne of grace to find help in time of need. So we have comfort by coming to God in prayer. The open invitation is to come unashamedly. The place is to come to the throne of grace. And the expectation is help when we need it. Comfort in prayer. And then we also, like Paul did, comfort through other Christians. And there we have a word that says, Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another. Other saints who have gone through trials can comfort those who suffer now. Because if you go through a very difficult experience and then you experience comfort, that equips you in ways that nothing else will to comfort others. And it's a serious sickness, a special needs child, the death of a child or a spouse or a sibling or a parent, a crime, abuse, undeserved attacks, and on and on and on. Just as spiritual gifts that are given to us are not meant for us, neither are neither is comfort that received from God meant to be just for us. It's also meant for us to be able to give to others. The comfort of God is channeled through people. The focus in this chapter or in this verse is not on the tribulation. The focus is on the consolation. The focus is on how Paul and how we can find rest and consolation from God after such a traumatic event. Now, it is true that you can receive a certain amount of consolation in communicating to people. Let me explain this a little bit. If someone has gone through something that you are going through and they have someone else has gone through it. Oh, let's, 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 let's put it this way. Let's imagine you have gone through some difficult situation and then someone else goes through a situation similar to yours. You can help them, but less if you are not in a state of flourishing. If you, in your situation, have not come to experience the comfort of God, then you are limited in your ability to help others find that comfort as well. In fact, it's more like it's more like your help that you received is, you know, fellow sufferers can make your pain easier to bear, but it can simply end up simply being misery loves company. And what, what is misery loves company? Well, it means, well, I got one definition here. 
here's what misery loves company. Here is where misery loves company can be true. In this context, miserable people seek like-minded people to commiserate with them and thus help them to indulge in their negativity and pessimism to each other's continual detriment. <laughs> That's misery loves company. And so just because someone goes through a very difficult time does not automatically equip them unless they have experienced the comfort and consolation of God. God gives us, we don't want that, we rather that God gives us personal experience of the sustaining power of grace in our trials and enables us to communicate to others what we have experienced in regard to the consolation of God. And it could be issues that are specific to the trial, usually is, but it could be also more in general, like um, just reminding that we are children of God, that God loves us, and that um, our sins are forgiven, that we have a home in heaven, that we have um, a part, yeah, pardon for sin and acceptance with God. You see, these are the, the normal consolations of a child of God. All those. And then there are specific ones that are specific to a trial when you're going through a specific issue that you can explain and uh, give comfort in how, how you dealt with this situation when you went through it and how you got relief and so on. So Paul knew that those who received the most trouble will experience the most comfort. Did you ever think of that? And those who experience the most comfort are the ones who are able to comfort others the most. Paul saw God just passing comfort through him. He said, I can comfort you with the comfort that I was comforted with. Now, one balancing word here, talking about suffering, one balancing word. Peter says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or as an evildoer or as a busybody in other men's matters. They're suffering other ways too, okay? Peter said, there's no promise of future glory in this suffering. There's no promise of mercy or consolation here. if you're suffering because of sin. Peter's comfort didn't come when he sinned until he repented. Then he was comforted, but not before. So God does not say, in all your sin, I'll comfort you. He does not say that. It's more likely he will chasten us because he has a goal. It's our holiness, he has a goal. So, just a word of balance there. Consolation. Verse 5. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. Here we have two abounds. To abound means to be in excess. 
That's what a bound means. Somebody say it means no bounds. Well, I, I mean, that, technically the word could be that. Ah means no, bound means a boundary. Technically, but really what it means in real life, it means excess. It means an excess of it. So as your sufferings are in excess, his sufferings in Christ were in excess, then he also experienced an excess of consolation. And that's actually the principle of the gospel. It's the principle of God, let's say. It's part of the gospel. That where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. Where there is a temptation, there is a way of escape. The greater the temptation, the greater the way of escape. Where there is a death, there is a resurrection. It's one of the laws of the upside-down kingdom that we are a part of. I just think of Abraham, and he never would have experienced God in the way that he did without God asking him to offer his son. That was an ultimate excess of temptation, if ever was one, I would think. But he did not falter, and he experienced God in a way. Now, see, none of us asked, he didn't ask for that test. And none of us ask for our sufferings, do we? We don't ask for our sufferings. But sufferings and trial and tribulation, what they do to us, they, they help us experience God in a way we would never have experienced God otherwise. So you don't ask for it, but you look for that silver lining in it. Maybe I should say this. It has the potential to do that for us. It also has the potential to do the other. It makes us, temptations or trials or sufferings makes us better or bitter, <laughs> right? Has that potential. And the major difference is whether we experience the consolation of God. You see, if we're never extremely thirsty, if you're never dehydrated, and I can't, I, I probably never would. I mean, I experienced thirst in a moderate way, but I can't imagine what it would be like to be, well, yeah, some of you experienced that thirst going across that valley. I don't know, was it you? I think it was. How it felt to finally drink water after you were really dehydrated. That water tastes much sweeter after that experience. <clears throat> If you're never completely exhausted and tired, you don't know how sweet that bed is. That's what the Bible says. The, the sleep of a laboring man is sweet, right? But here's the thing. If we're thirsty, but we never have our thirst quenched by the living water, we suffer on. If we never find rest in the gospel, we labor on. So if we experience sufferings, but we don't actually experience consolation, we suffer on. That's like a thirsty man not getting water. And you say, that is a horrible place to be. And it is. 
But when we experience the consolation of Christ, then we can bless God like Paul did. The father of mercies, father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we can experience that mercy and comfort that supersedes the sorrow. You know, I, I know little of suffering for Christ. I know a little bit of a scorn for some obedience. I could probably make more money if I set my heart on it. Yes, we have some relational challenges sometimes, sometimes partial or almost sleepless nights because of difficulties and concerns and cares in the church. And there's, there's, there's little things that I experience But there's many who have suffered much for Christ. I think of a family who opened their home to a man in need and that man took advantage of them and came back and devastated their family. I think of those who don't compromise and they face um, completely crippling lawsuits. Or just the other week, I talked to a minister who there was a church that was having difficulty, needed help. They sacrificed money, time, and time at home and comforts, went to give help to the church. The church ended up dividing, and they ended up getting blamed for it. If they wouldn't have gone, they would have been free of that there. And many dedicated missionaries experienced this much, much more. If you wish to avoid trouble and suffering, don't get involved in other people's lives. Take that to the bank. Well, you will still experience some, but you will suffer more if you get involved in other people's lives. Don't try to help them. Let them alone. Live your own comfortable life. But if you do get involved, you will open yourself up to suffering. Of course, what does God ask us to do? That's what Paul was doing. Paul knew almost constant suffering. But if you open yourself up to suffering, then you open yourself up to the comfort of God. And that's the focus again, thriving in suffering. Paul knew almost constant suffering. John MacArthur, at this quote, he said, instead of fighting it, he embraced it. Instead of resisting, he welcomed it and even reached a point in his spiritual experience where in this very same letter in chapter 12, he says, Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong." Thriving in suffering. Yes, Paul found it. Verses 6 and 7. Whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, 
which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that ye are partake, as ye are partakers of the suffering, so shall ye also be of the consolation. Here in this letter, now here, we see a subtle shift in Paul's focus. To this point, he was primarily recounting his own heart and his own experience. And now he is coming to the Corinthians and he's drawing them in. He begins to bring the church into his experience. You see, he's not writing a letter to boast or just share his own experience. He's not writing it just to look at me, look at what I've done, although he, it looks like he does that in some parts of the letter, but that's not his goal. It's an example of Paul's skill as he's writing a letter. He shows that all his trials were for the church's welfare. Not all of them, but his trials, some of them were for their welfare. He suffered so they could get the gospel. He suffered so that they could be comforted. He was afflicted for their advantage. And we talked about being in debt this morning, right? We talked about that, being a debtor. He is bringing before them, and this is the first time he does this in this letter, he brings before them his suffering for them and their debt to him. And he'll do a lot more of that later on. See, we are under obligation or gratitude to one who suffers for us. You know how it is. Oh, that's how, um, yes, that's what it was. Out of the meeting, Joe Tyndall. He was an, agnost an agnostic. He was about 37, 38 years old. Never read the Bible. Well, I don't know if he did. He, yeah, a little bit in Sunday school, but he was not familiar with the Bible at all. And they moved, and they moved to Honeybrook area, and they were across the road from a Beachy family. <laughs> and it's interesting, that family did not preach the gospel to them, whether that was right or wrong, but their house burned, and the family came and helped them clean up. And then later on, he came over and asked them, we have revival meetings down here. Will you come? Well, there was a debt established in that person's life. <laughs> you know, they helped me, and now they're asking something for me to do. Yeah, yeah, I'll go. So he went. And they said they talked about the home. <laughs> That's what the preacher talked about, and he didn't get much out of that, but what he got most out of it there is that they actually opened the Bible and they actually got practical, real living things out of it. He thought, the, he thought it was an old, dead, religious book, but it was real. And he went home, began to read the Bible. He actually found one in the house. And when he went to the revival meeting the next time, that was half a year or a year later, he was primed. He was ready. But Paul here, he's beginning to let them know, he said, 
Whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation. Or whether we, we be comforted, it is for your comfort and salvation. In other words, I'm experiencing these things for your sake. And brings them uh, a sense of obligation. And it, it's, it's a skillful thing that, it, that is done. So maybe, maybe, that, maybe this uh, is, a, is a, should I say, is a, a clue of how we can minister to those around us. The way what happened there with Joel. How we can uh, reach our neighbors and so on. <clears throat> so, in fact, it's one of, a, one of the reasons we love the Lord Jesus Christ. It's because of what he's done for us. It's because we, he has done all that for us. All, uh, all to him I owe. What's the first part of that? Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. That's right. It's that sense of obligation. <clears throat> and then Paul also expressed confidence. He said, our hope in you is steadfast. He expressed confidence in the church that they would make it, that they would experience comfort in their own particular sufferings that they were experiencing. Now, it doesn't, we don't know exactly what suffering they were experiencing, but the early church, they faced opposition. And, of course, if you can think of it, there were different factions even in the church to, to stand with Paul and to stand with truth they're going to face opposition but he had confidence that they would they would be able to make it and the next verse for we would not brethren have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia that we were pressed out of measure above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. But we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and doth deliver in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. Have you ever real, come to a situation, arrived at a place where you realize that everything is completely out of your control? The situation is bad. It's very bad. It's so horrible. It's so bad that you feel like you're being crushed. And you could ask the question, why does God allow such a thing to happen? And it's the age-old question, why, does, why do bad things happen to good people? And of course, we know that there are no good people. That's easy, right? Okay, no good people. But I am a dedicated Christian. I have given my life to God. I am serving him. In fact, what, I, what, what I'm suffering for is because I obeyed him, and it is just horrible. Why would God do that? Why would you do this to me? Paul gives us the purpose of the trial. He does not say that the situation you're in makes sense. But he does say what the purpose is. What is the purpose of this situation that was so, so, so bad? It's so that 
is to make us rely not on ourselves, not on our own strength, our own abilities, but to rely on God. It was to take, it was to wean us away from ourselves and to rest, uh, to, to wean us or to rely entirely on God. So we should not trust in ourselves, but in God. <clears throat> now, it seems to me as I read that, that the Apostle Paul sometimes trusted in himself. <laughs> and if he needed an experience like that to get the trust in himself away, do we also need experiences so that we do not trust in ourselves? And I guess that is right. So that's the purpose. Nothing else makes sense. But the purpose makes sense to wean ourselves off from ourselves. That's the purpose. And here we have the three tenses of salvation coming from Paul out of that intense trouble. He said, we should not trust in ourselves, but in God, which raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and doth deliver, in whom we trust he will yet deliver us. We heard this morning that the just shall live by faith, right? We're going faith to faith. Well, this is it. This is faith. This is faith in God. He delivered you, and you have experienced that. You're in the middle of where you are, and you're walking by faith, and you have confidence that God is going to continue to deliver you. Now that is faith. And if the just shall live by faith, we need to live that way, with confidence in God. And until we have confidence in God, we're going to have confidence in something else. We're going to have confidence in our resources. We're going to have confidence in our structures. We're going to have confidence in our abilities, others around us, all that all has a place. But truly, we need to have our confidence in our God. That doesn't mean that we don't have anything else. It just means that our confidence, we're going to do what we need to do. We're going to obey you. We're going to do what you want us to do. But in the end, my confidence is in you. You're the one who's going to see me through. So that is living by faith. So after a period of terrible suffering, was Paul experiencing human flourishing? Now, we're going to come around to the beginning. Was he experiencing human flourishing? And we say, well, by whose standard? Right now, he wasn't in a prison, but later on, he was in a prison. That's probably not human flourishing. Though, so was he experiencing it? Well, we need to change the question. Was Paul thriving in suffering? I say, yes, he was. If you have this kind of confidence in God... That's what faith is, confidence in God. 
if you had such confidence in God in your difficult situation that he's seen you through the past, he's seen you through now, he will see you through the future, you also will thrive in your suffering. And the question is, am I thriving? I know it's easy to say that when we're here on a sunny morning, a sunny Sunday morning among the people of God. The tests come in the middle of the night. Some devastating news, some real pain, and other things like that. That's where the test comes. But this is the pathway to thrive. Like the Corinthians, we may need to come before God in repentance about how we have complained and murmured and resisted in our troubles. Rather than casting them on the Lord and trusting him and receiving comfort from him and from the word and in prayer and from other people. James chapter 1 verse 12 says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. That means to remain steadfast under trial. For when he is tried, when he has stood the test, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. Thriving in suffering. Are you in a place this morning that God would say is flourishing? So that's the word of God for us this morning. So may God bless all of you.